We are continuing our study of the life of Moses. We're actually taking a giant leap forward because we probably have two more RUFs after this. All right, so you remember last week we were in Exodus 20 and we were looking at the Ten Commandments. Now we're jumping all the way up to Numbers 21. And those of you that have taken Old Testament survey know that uh, we're skipping the entire book of Leviticus and we're skipping most of the book of Numbers. So I've got to give you a little context for where we're at in the story now. What, what has happened is the first generation, the people that Moses led out of Egypt, have continued to rebel against God over and over again. At one point, there was this, this scene where they had, um, basically God had, had told them to go into the land of Canaan and to take it, and instead they sent these spies, and the spies came back and said, we can't do it. And... Um, there are various things that went on. Long and short of it is, God has now said that this first generation, because of their lack of faith, even Moses himself, will not enter into the promised land. Okay? But we have this second generation who's come up. And in a lot of ways, Numbers 21 is, is, is a real, well, it's, a, it, it's sort of this transition. Because you have the second generation now coming to the front. The second generation, and uh, this one commentator uh, I was reading was saying that in a lot of ways, this is a, a fresh beginning. And Numbers 21 starts out um, very much like things are going to be better now. Uh, they actually have a battle with the Canaanites, and this is the first time that they actually prevail against the Canaanites. They win this time. The last time they had battled the Canaanites, they, they were defeated. Now they've won. Um, not only that, but... Um, you know, they seem to be trusting God enough to sort of devote to him all of the spoils of war that would be by right theirs. They've said, no, we're going to give it to you, God, because we're going to trust you for everything. So it seems that there's great faith in them. They seem like a very different generation. But as we get into this story, we're going to see that in a lot of ways, they're not much different at all. And they're not much different than us. It doesn't matter, like, how well things go. It doesn't take very long before we're back to murmuring against God. So let's, let's read this. Um, we'll pick up Numbers 21 at verse 4. Or actually, I, sent, I gave you the whole thing, didn't I? Let, let's start at verse 1. Let me grab my copy of it here. When the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming along the road to Atharim, he attacked the Israelites and captured some of them. Then Israel made this vow to the Lord, if you will deliver these people into our hands, we will totally destroy their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's plea and gave the Canaanites over to them. They completely destroyed them and their towns, so the place was named Hormah. They, meaning the Israelites, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. 
Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, but we confess this is a strange story. And uh, we pray that you would help us to understand you through this. Your ways are not our ways. We thank you for that, even in advance. And we pray, Lord, that we would worship you as we have spent time in your word tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a strange story, isn't it? It's one of my favorite stories. Because the strange stories are the ones that you have to sit in for a while. And I've been sitting in this story for a long time. I've taught this, uh, this, uh, this story a n- number of times. I just find it so rich and so fascinating and yet so bizarre. I mean, so random. The Lord sends venomous snakes to bite the people, right? Right off the bat, you know, you read this passage and a number of, number of questions jump out at you, don't you? I actually think that's actually a good practice when you're, if you're trying to read the Bible and you're trying to understand the Bible. A really good thing is to just sort of jot down all the questions that come out of your reading. All the things that seem strange and bizarre are worth reading and worth writing down and worth thinking about. And that's really the truth with this story. You got this, the, the questions just emerge like, why snakes? And then why this bizarre form of healing? I mean, people are dying. And, and how long does it take to make a bronze serpent? I've never cast bronze, but I don't think it's a quick solution. And then why, when you've got snakes all around on the ground, are you told to look up in the air, right, at a pole? That seems very impractical, right? It's a, it's a strange story. And it's one of those stories that I think the more, you, the more you dig into it, the more you reflect on it, you find... It's a wonderfully rich story for teaching us about who God is. And then you're actually going to find Jesus himself used this very story to teach people about who he is and what he came to do. This isn't one of those passages where I have to try to find Jesus in it and you wonder if I'm making it up. This is one of the passages that Jesus used himself and said, this is about me. So let's dive into it. First, we're going to look at the sin that brings the snakes. It seems like no big deal, murmuring. What's, what's the big deal about murmuring? What is, what is murmuring? Murmuring. I, I think the way to understand murmuring is it's slander against God. That's why it's such a big deal. It's slan- think about murmuring. Murmuring is basically under your breath. My kids do this. Right? <laughs> like They say they submit to you, but they're still like holding inside. They're not. It's like they may bow, you know, outside, but inside they're not. Murmuring is you're just convincing yourself that you're still in control, that you still have power, that you're not really submitting. It's slander against God. It's saying to God, okay, I don't like what you're doing. I don't think you're doing a very good job. You're not doing the things that you're supposed to do. Either you don't care or you don't have the power. You see, as they go through this passage, they're saying, look, there's no bread. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no water. We detest this miserable food. They're complaining. They're finding fault with the provision of God. God has given them so many things, and none of them are what they actually want. It's slandering his character. It's basically saying to God, it's not just that they don't like the food. They've went beyond not liking the food to saying, we don't like God who gives us the food. 
And we don't like him because he's not doing what we want him to do. They say he's not providing. And we deserve better than this. We deserve better than this. Do you you recognize this attitude? I, I recognize this attitude. It's in my heart all the time. Now, of course, the irony is that he's providing for them in all kinds of miraculous ways. At the same time, they're complaining and murmuring. And, you know, murmuring really is always kind of insane. But the manna is the detestable food. You remember when we talked about this miraculous food that God gave them? That's the detestable food that they don't like, the manna. And, and you remember the first part of this chapter that we read is all about this amazing victory that he gave them over the Canaanites who had, you know, kicked their tail before. And, and, and so, you know, all the things they're complaining about are right in the face of all the evidence that God does care for them and is providing for them. I think what's really going on, you see, is they don't want God to be the one to determine the provision that he will give them. Murmuring is not the same thing as saying, God, you haven't given me anything. It's saying, I don't like what you've given me. I don't like what you've given me. Murmuring always comes out of wanting God not to be God, not to be the the healer, but wanting God to be the divine pharmacist, wanting to keep for ourselves the right and the prerogative to write the prescription and then demanding that God fill it. Do you you understand the difference? It's one thing to say to God, God, I want you and I want you to have your way. It's another thing to say, God, here's what you need to do. Let me tell you, let me spell it out for you. Murmuring comes out of that second kind of heart. Wanting to write the prescription and have God fill it. Now, why snakes? In, in light of it, murmuring, and murmuring is very serious. In the book of Jude in the New Testament, the list of all the things that God is coming back again and will deal with when Jesus comes back again, murmuring is the first in the list. It's not a minor thing, okay? Especially when you understand what it is saying about God's character. What you don't really have the courage to say to his face, you're sort of saying behind his back, I don't like you, I don't think you do things well. Right? That's murmuring. Now, why, why snakes? I mean, you read this, you go, that seems so random. Why would God send snakes? I, I think there's two reasons. The first is, and we talked about this a little bit in the Ten Plagues, snakes were one of the most important signs of power for Egypt. I think at one level, God is saying to them, you want to go back to Egypt? You liked it in Egypt when you were under the power of the serpent? give you a little reminder of what serpents are like. You don't want that. Do you really want that? But even more importantly, I think he's trying to remind them of another serpent bite that's more profound and more important and more basic and more in line with understanding where murmuring comes from. I don't think you can read this passage. I don't think you can think for very long about why God would send snakes without seeing the connection to this and the story in Genesis 3 of the fall. You see, it's, it's, it's the same story in a new key. It's, it's our story as well, right? The same story. In other words, God provides all these wonderful things for Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything they could ever want. Except he says, of this tree, don't eat. And they look at it. It's good to the eye. 
It seems that God is holding out on us. God is holding out on us. They're slandering his character. And it's, it's, it's just a, a short step from there to eating. From there to saying, God has no right to tell me how I should live. Murmuring is, is going on in the Garden of Eden. Murmuring is always at the heart of our sins. Martin Luther went so far, I, I mentioned this two weeks ago, to say that before we break any of the Ten Commandments, we first break the first commandment. We first make God out to be something less than he is. That's what they're doing here. That's what Adam and Eve did. They said, God is not good. Why would he hold out from us? The Israelites are saying, God is not good. He doesn't care about us. It's what we do all the time, too. God doesn't care, so I better take care of myself. God doesn't have the power to deal with this situation, so I better take matters into my own hands. Murmuring. Right? See, the real sin that's going on here, the real sin that was going on in the Garden of Eden, the real sin that goes on in the heart of all of our sins is rather than worshiping God, we want to use him as a means to an end. Let me say that again. Rather than worshiping God, we want to use him as a means to an end. We may think murmuring is no big deal. But God sees it as evidence that we're trying to use him rather than have him. Right? As a way to get something we think we really, really need. And he better come through for us. Now, I, I know this. I, I mean, so much of my testimony of coming to understand God's grace is wrapped around this. Because when I first, when I first was exposed to the idea that you could have a personal relationship with Jesus was when I was in ninth grade. And I remember thinking very specifically, I'm a miserable, lonely person. But it seems that these Christians are nice to each other. I want, maybe if I was a Christian, I'd have friends. And so I remember, I, I do think I was converted at that point. But if I, I, would, I would tell you that my main motivation, yes, I, I was convinced I was a sinner, but I really wanted friends. And I saw accepting Jesus as the way to get friends. The only people that were nice to me were Christians. So it seemed to make sense that if I was part of that group, that I would have friends. But I will tell you, as I lived through my life, it seemed that God went out of his way to thwart my ability to make friends. Like, things that just didn't make any sense. They were so weird, like, obvious. Like, he's keeping me from having friends here and here and here. And I got more and more angry, more and more bitter. I finally got to seminary, took a class, John would know, Seth Dearness. And I had to take the Myers-Briggs test. And, and Seth, as he was taking me through this test, one of the professors there has passed away now. But he took me through this test. He said, Kevin, this test is detecting quite a bit of anger. Like, I'm not an angry person. I was angry before I became a Christian, but I quit being angry when I was a Christian. Um, he said, well, you know, you might want to explore that because these tests usually, usually are pretty accurate in picking this kind of stuff up. So it was about a year later. This is after seminary now, right? I'm working as a pastor and I go back to St. Louis to speak at this church, be part of this conference that was going on there. Scotty Smith, who's a, a pastor down in Franklin, is preaching one night on anger. And I'm standing there. I'm up on the stage because I was playing music. And I start out the sermon thinking, oh, anger. Yeah, you know, Seth had mentioned anger. I'm not angry. And then the sermon goes on. I'm like, oh, I really am angry. You know, and, and what was amazing is, as he, as he began to talk, I began to realize why I was so angry. 
But at the same time I realized why I was so angry, I also was overwhelmed by the love of God who hadn't blotted me off of the face of the earth for trying to use him as a way to get friends rather than worshiping him. Do you know, in other words, I saw at the same time, I've been so angry at you, God. I've been a Christian for like 15 years, and I've been angry with you the entire time because you haven't given me friends. And at the same time, I, I, I felt the love of God pursuing me, saying, Kevin, I want you. I'm, I'm not here just to give you friends. I want your heart. I'm pursuing you, even in this moment, showing you how you've been using me, gently but profoundly, right? All I can say, guys, is worshiping God rather than using him is the key to having a relationship with God. There are a lot of people that go to church that have been brought up in church. Maybe they are Christians. Maybe for years and years. Maybe you're sitting here wondering if being a Christian is really paying off as well as you thought it would. But you need to understand there's a huge difference between using God as a means to an end and worshiping him. So God sends snakes. Now, I don't know what he'll send for you, or if he will, but I know this. What's, what's so important for you to understand is that God loves you too much to let you get away with using him as a means to an end. He didn't make you to use him as a means to an end, and he won't let you get away with it forever. Now, of course, what will happen when he sends things into your life to show you that you've been using him as a means to an end? Well, often we murmur, and we hate him even more. But what I'm wanting you to see is sometimes God does things so bizarre that you have to draw the conclusion that he has a point in what he's doing. Like this doesn't just make, this isn't just some random thing. This is, this is such a bizarre thing, sending snakes, that you have to stop and ponder, what is he trying to say, right? And, and the way of healing is even more confusing and even more strange. It's one, one thing, okay, he sends snakes, but then the strange way of healing in this passage is, is just, well, well, look at this. I mean, how long does it take to make a bronze serpent? Does anybody know? I mean, they had to build quite a fire, I imagine. They had to stoke it pretty hot. I, I have no idea how you make bronze, but I know that they didn't do it in about an hour and a half. I know they didn't do it in the time that it took that venom to take somebody's life. Right? And doesn't it seem cruel to make a, make a snake? The very thing that's killing them God says, you have to look at that to be healed. The very thing that's killing you, unless you look at it, you'll never be healed. And again, why put it up, up here when what you really want to be looking at is these snakes? Right? Can you picture this? That's weird. And why didn't he just remove the snakes? Because when you get down to verse 9, it's obvious that the snakes remain even after the bronze serpent begins to heal people. Because it says whenever this, these snakes would bite people, they would have to look at the serpent. Right? All right. So what's going on here? I think the only way to understand this is to realize that God is after something deeper. Some kind of healing deeper than just the healing of snake bites. He could, have, he could have healed the snake bites in so many other ways. But Deuteronomy 8.2 actually tells us what God was after in all of the wandering of the desert. And I think it really helps us understand what God is doing here. 
It turns out the same issue that Adam and Eve fell into in the garden. It's this. God wants his people to trust him. He's always wanted it. Do you remember? I've said this time and time again, and I want you to get this. If there's one thing you remember from the semester, it's that God was after more than just delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. He also needed to deliver them from slavery to their sin and their unbelief. There were two great threats to God's purposes for the world being realized. The first were the external enemies that threatened to wipe out the people of God and the Messiah who was to come through him. But there also was their own sin and unbelief, which was always a threat to God, you know, deciding maybe I've had enough of these faithless people, right? Listen to Deuteronomy 8.2, what God says. And this is at the end, sort of as looking back over the wandering of the desert, God says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, And to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines, so the Lord your God disciplines you. It says he humbled you, causing you hunger, then he could feed you, so that he could teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What the Lord was doing through the wandering in the desert was to teach them that you need to be dependent upon me. You need me. You don't just need the stuff that I can give you. You don't just need the things that I can do for you. You need me. It's what he's been trying to teach. In other words, having people look at a bronze snake seems pretty bizarre. And and it may make you wonder, but listen, listen. What a picture of faith, looking up when the danger is all around, right? It's a strange, strange way of healing. But it's not the strangest way of healing that God has ever devised. Nothing compares to the cross as the strangest manner of healing that God has ever devised. And Jesus says that this picture here is just whetting our appetite, just getting us used to this even more strange healing that he's bringing, right? Healing comes through looking at the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that when I am lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, right? He says, this is a picture of me lifted up on a cross. Now, that's weird, but you think about it, and you begin to realize maybe that is what God is teaching here. Healing, you see, comes through looking at the thing that is your sin personified. Looking at the cross means that that growing and coming to Christ can never be by doing an end run around your brokenness and your sin. Jesus says, if you want to come to me, you have to look at me crucified. You can't come to me and flatter yourself that you're really a pretty good guy or pretty good girl. That, That you really would be, you know, a wonderful, you know, resource for God's kingdom. 
No, if you want to come to me, Jesus says, you have to look at me being tortured and realize that I'm doing that in your place. Just like Moses here, this picture, God is saying to them, if you want to understand what you need, you have to look. You have to look at this picture of your sin. The snakes come because you murmur. Because just like Adam and Eve in the garden, you find fault with me. And yet, if you want to be healed, you have to, you have to own that. You have to own that. And you have to look to my provision alone. Do you see all the parallels? See, faith is not keeping one foot in this sort of box and one over here and sort of covering all your bases. Martin Luther used to call faith a living, daring hope in God. I don't know what a better picture of living, daring hope than looking up in the air at this provision that God has given them while there's snakes all around who are still biting people, right? This is the picture. Salvation comes through a look, and the look is the thing that is your greatest shame. The cross is our greatest shame. The cross says, don't flatter yourself. You deserve death and hell. But... It's also what gives us boldness and hope because the cross Jesus took, right? See, here's what I think God is trying to do here. God wants to turn their why questions into who questions. He does this a lot. I really think that's the point of the book of Job, but that's a topic for another day. Um, Or get a cup of coffee. We can talk about it. The why questions. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why do you do this? Why didn't you do this, God? All ultimately are who questions. But we often never get to the who questions. We often get stuck in the why questions. God brings these things into our lives so often to lead us to these deeper questions of who are you? Who is a God who would care for more than just snake bites, but would care enough to send his own son to die so that we can be reconciled to him, even when we still murmur against him. What kind of God is that? Who is this person, right? Who is this God like this? Those kind of questions. But we get caught up sometimes. I I, I think of it this way. These kinds of things that God brings are really like this current that should be, you know, driving us towards who are you? I need to know you in a deeper way. There's depths here, God. I don't understand you. And yet so often we get caught in these little eddies. Instead of the main current, we're caught over in these little eddies like, well, why does he give us this? And why didn't he do that? And why didn't he do that? And why did this happen? Why didn't that happen? These things are really to provoke us into these who questions. And that's what God is trying to do with Israel here, is to say it's not enough for you to just you know, say, oh, great, we've been healed now. But I want you to ponder and think about who is a God that does things like this, who sends snakes and then makes you look at a pole with a snake up on top of it. That's weird. It should make you think, who is he and what is he trying to teach us? He wants to turn their their why questions to go beyond just why snakes to who are you that you would do things like this. See, murmuring, I think, is usually expressed in questioning why has God done this? Why is he doing that? rather than saying, who are you in the midst of this? I remember I had a girl that worked with me years ago at the church, and she had suffered really much more than I ever have. Um, 
her mother had died in a car accident and after languishing in a coma for years and years when she was in high school. Um, that, that was just the beginning. Uh, and, and I remember what was so fascinating, whenever she would meet with people, particularly suffering people, she always had the courage to ask this question that I, I often struggle to ask. She would always ask, well, what do you think God is doing in the midst of this? I would always be wanting to say, well, what can I tell you that will help you feel better? That's what I'm thinking. And she'd always, she'd always humble me by if we were together talking to somebody. She'd say, well, what do you think God is trying to do in the midst of this? Have you learned to ask that question in the midst of trials, in the midst of struggles? What is God doing? Now, I don't think, I know some of you guys are so introspective that you can just get caught in this, in this sort of little whirlpool of asking this question and think you're going to kind of come up with this perfect answer where you're not going to question anymore. I don't think the Bible promises that. But I do think that the Bible promises that God will reveal himself to you when you seek him. And I find that often he does these sorts of things to get us to seek him and to drive us deeper. Now what's, what's interesting about this, um, this provision is it really you know, shows us um, how important it is to not look to the Lord's provision, but to continue to look to the Lord. There's a very interesting little, little place in the Bible where this serpent, this bronze serpent, makes a reappearance. This serpent actually has a reappearance in the Bible. It's a little bit later. Um, it's in 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, and I'll read you these words. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, he's one of the good kings, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. And then this in verse 4. He removed the high places. That's the places where people worship false gods. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. Asherah was one of the false gods. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For at that time, sorry, for up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. So this thing that the Lord gives them as a provision this thing that he gives them to direct them to his ultimate healing that he'd bring through the Messiah, they actually begin to worship it. They offer incense to it, and they've even named it. Right? So here's what's interesting. Even the things that the Lord gives us to draw us deeper to himself, we turn and use as ways to try to control him all over again. Which shows us that no matter, you know, even with the healing that comes to us through looking, we can still turn around and try to control it and, and, and regain control of it. In other words, you can even do this with Jesus. Do you know this? One of my favorite old writers is this guy, William Romaine. You probably won't ever read his letters, but you really should. He was a friend of John Newton, so they argued about whether you should sing hymns or psalms. They argued a lot about that, but they were good friends in, in other ways. But in one of his letters, he's writing to this person who's really depressed and really down, and he says to them, listen, the problem is, the problem is you've made a Jesus out of your faith. And, and he goes on and he tells this person, he says, look, 
your faith is full of holes. Some days you trust well, other days you find it really difficult to trust. And what, what it's done is you've, you've begun to think that Jesus is as full of holes as your faith is. Because you've made a Jesus out of your faith. In other words, you know, the Bible teaches that faith is a beautiful, wonderful gift of God. Like Charles Spurgeon, the old Baptist preacher, said one time, if you find faith in your heart, it's like this rare exotic plant. You know that it's not native to your heart. So if you find it growing there, somebody must have planted it, right? That's what the Bible teaches about faith. And yet we can turn it around and begin to sort of try to use it to control God. We can do it in real gross forms like the TV preachers who say if you say the right words with the right kind of confidence, you can get what you want. But we do it, we do it in our sort of more subtle forms too. And, and the way you know that you're doing it is when rather than worshiping God, you're expecting him to give you what you want. Often your disappointment and the way you deal with it is a clue that you're basically trying to control God even with your faith. Like I pray and I do the right things and yet I'm not getting what I want, right? You can make a Jesus out of your faith. We can make even the Lord's provision into an idol, just like they did. But God is a good God. And so what he does is he tends to take away the things that we trust in. If God has given you something that helps you, sometimes he feels a need to take it away if it's leading you away from him, right? And the question is, what do we do when that happens? Do we murmur more? Or do we, do we sort of get back into understanding, God, who are you? What are you doing? Do I understand that your ultimate goal in what you're doing is to draw me deeper into a deeper trust for you? It's what God has always been about. It's what he's always been about, and it's what he's still doing. Now, the why questions are not inappropriate, but it's so important that we, that we go beyond them into the who questions. Who are you, God? We sang that hymn, um, uh, his love can never fail. And, and I think it's been, it was inspired by a saying of Martin Luther's that I love. I know not where he leads, but well do I know my God. See, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, you know, the, the, the key between to worshiping God and using God is if you're using God, you're not very comfortable unless he tells you where he's leading you and you have the right to agree. <laughs> but worshiping God means saying, Lord, I don't, I don't know where you're leading, but I know you. And I know that you're the one who cares enough that when I'm murmuring, you take it seriously enough to deal with it. And ultimately, you took it seriously enough to send Jesus. And while I may not understand what you're doing now, I do know that you sent Jesus to live and die in the place of sinners. I do know that this can't possibly be an expression of your hate for me because you poured out your wrath on Jesus. So while I don't know where you're going, I want to worship you in the midst of what I'm going through. Again, I think that's what what Job is all about. And um, this this passage, I I, I just think it's one of these, these, these stories that you say, God is a lot more mysterious than, than you may have thought he was and than I may have thought he was. Because you read a passage like this and you're like, I mean, either you, either you throw this out and you say, who could, work, who, could, who could be with a God like this? Or you say, God, I have to bow down and worship. You remember this, this thing I tell you sometimes, R.C. Sproul said one time, he's this old Bible teacher, he said, 
the best way to grow as a Christian is to go through the Bible and underline everything you don't like and then meditate on it because either you need to grow, either you need to change or God needs to change. This is one of those passages. Like you could throw it out or you could say, okay, I don't understand a God who sends snakes to bite his people and then he causes them and then he makes them look up at this provision. But listen, this is what the cross is all about. Jesus comes and he says, look at me. And when you look at me, when you look at me, you can't do an end run around your sin. You can't pretend that you've got it all together at the same time you're grabbing hold of Jesus. Right? There's no other way. And while at at one level we may not like that, at another level it's exactly what we need. And it's not just what we needed to become Christians, it's what we need to grow as Christians. We need to constantly be reminded that Jesus died for us. And that means two things. It means that he had to die, and it means that he did die for us, right? Let's pray together.